Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. Coming up on Sound Medicine, the author of a national bestseller on how he would fix the healthcare system. You cut out that middleman, and by doing that, you certainly remove the incentive to overtest and overbill. Plus, a doctor with a front row seat on what happens when marijuana becomes legal in a state. More than one patient has requested that I interview them while they were in a hot shower, which is an interesting experience, to say the least. Surveys show that, by many measures, today's teens are all right. Well, whatever has caused it, we have to keep it going. And we'll look at the troubles facing many of America's rural hospitals. Once you lose that anchoring point of a rural hospital, the other services erode as well. All that and more coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, public radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. Our first guest has repeatedly found himself deep in the healthcare system in recent years, both as an observer and as a patient. Journalist and entrepreneur Stephen Brill joins us today to discuss his new book, America's Bitter Pill, with our policy contributor, Dr. Aaron Carroll. In the book, Brill discusses the behind-the-scenes struggle that went into the creation of the Affordable Care Act, as well as the emergency that gave him a very personal interest in the strengths and weaknesses of the healthcare system. When I went into writing this, I had been looking for a way to do a narrative story that would help people understand how the country works. So I decided to pick how a dysfunctional Washington attempted to fix a dysfunctional healthcare system. And, I, and my sense was that would have all the ingredients of everything that's right and wrong with this country, and indeed it did. There are a lot of really uplifting stories in the book, the way the people from Silicon Valley came in and rescued the website, the way some very dedicated staffers on Capitol Hill who were not, you know, revolving door sellouts worked hard and hard and hard to get a law passed. Um, the story of Ted Kennedy in this thing I think is pretty moving. So that's a lot of that is good news. The bad news is the orgy of lobbying that one could have predicted when you're talking about reforming the largest, most complicated industry in the country. So I was looking for that kind of drama, that kind of you know roller coaster narrative, and that's what I got. So what do you think the ACA has done the best in addressing? What problems do you think have been best addressed by the law so far? Well, that's pretty clear. It indisputably allowed 15 to 20 million new people to have access to health care, and in doing so, really erased or began to erase what is a national embarrassment or a national disgrace, which is that we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't do something to make sure that all or most of our citizens have access to health care. What do you think it hasn't done so well, or where do you think it's failed? Well, it, 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 what it hasn't done and, and what it doesn't do, it doesn't 
do anything to address the exorbitant cost and the exorbitant profiteering in our healthcare industry that allows everybody involved except the doctors and the nurses to ride a gravy train. So then you tend to favor the camp that thinks that the significant slowdown that we've seen in healthcare spending now and in you know the past few years is not because of the Affordable Care Act. Well, A, I don't see the slowdown as significant. And it's not a, it's not a decline in cost. It's nope. a slowdown in the rate of increase. Yes. B, if you really look at all those things, what you find is that the data they're citing are 2012 and 2013 at the latest. And that's uh, before the Obamacare exchanges were even operating. So why would that have anything to do with Obamacare? I do think on the edges of certain issues, it did focus more attention. Just the idea that accountable care organizations are encouraged. They're not required. They're not the the incentives and the risk-taking. The risk-reward isn't really terribly great, but they're certainly not required. But just the fact that it's talked about for Medicare... I do think, um, and I quoted Gary Gottlieb, Partners Healthcare in Massachusetts is saying this, is it focused a lot more attention on the idea that, you know, maybe we're going to have to figure out a different way to do business. Mm-hmm. By the same token, I think that the relatively piddling penalties for having above normal hospital readmissions rates for Medicare patients created a kind of scorecard where hospitals actually began to you know, focus on their readmission rates. So that's a good thing. But the core structure of healthcare commerce in the United States has not been affected by Obamacare except to, on the government's dime, add a lot more people into that commerce stream. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Dr. Aaron Carroll is speaking with journalist Stephen Brill about his new book about the healthcare system, America's Bitter Pill. In this next exchange, you'll hear Brill mention Toby Cosgrove in an example about accountable care organizations. Dr. Cosgrove is the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. Let's get back to their conversation. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the contrast between, I think, the article and the book, and maybe you see it differently than I will. But I felt like in the articles, you focus very much on sort of how hospitals were often screwing patients, um, the the charge masters, the prices. And I felt like at the end of this book, you'd made a significant change that now almost your prescription was we should let some of these hospitals and the people that run them loose and give them even more control over the system. And I was wondering, do you feel like well, I had an accurate read? Or? No, you left out the but there. I mean, literally, in that sentence has a but in it. But we should regulate them. Okay. So, I mean, I like the idea of, you know, Toby Cosgrove in Cleveland, if I'm in Ohio, organizing my health care, being the person who controls the quality of the doctors and hospitals and clinics I go to. I like the idea that he could be a one-stop shop with his brand name so that if I go to some urgent care center or walk-in clinic, it's got the same standards and is under the same you know, accountability and brand as the Cleveland Clinic. And I also think that if you house all those people under one roof, you're likely to get the kind of economies that accountable care organizations are supposed to get. Having said that, I don't want to trust Kobe Cosgrove, as great a guy as he is. I want to have regulations that say if you have an oligopoly or a monopoly in a given market, uh, your profits are controlled and various aspects of what you do and how you charge are going to be tightly regulated. So do you think that that's very different than what we would call managed care? Uh, Well, 
Yeah, because the managed care that sort of rose and fell in the 1990s didn't have that kind of regulation. And in fact, the drivers of the managed care were for-profit insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Here, you say to a, you know, a New York Presbyterian Hospital or a, even UPMC in Pittsburgh, you have a not-for-profit tax exemption. We're now going to really attach a lot of conditions to that. You have an oligopoly, or in the case of Pittsburgh, a monopoly. We're going to attach a lot of conditions to that. We don't need to pass any laws. We have the regulatory authority to do this, and we're going to do it. And we're going to have ombudsmen in the hospital reportable to us, the regulators, and the governor or whoever it is, who are going to process complaints very quickly if you try to skimp on care, but because you're doctors and you've taken an oath, we have a little more confidence that you won't try to skimp on care the way you know someone on the phone at an insurance company's you know, customer service center in Bangalore might try to skimp on care. So it almost seems as if we're getting to sort of a system where it's almost like localized utility, sort of one-stop shop, yeah. but it would just be locally well, based and run by private groups as opposed nonprofits as opposed to the government. That's exactly right. But it's not so much my idea as my sort of looking up as I'm finishing my book and realizing it's a reality. It's happening. You know, you have, you know, four or five huge hospital systems where I live in New York who are gobbling up practices, competing with each other. They have billboards to compete with each other. But what they're now competing for is by proxy is they're competing to have leverage with the insurance company. The next step is to sell their own insurance, as in fact uh, North Shore LIJ, one of the four big ones in New York, is now doing. And Cleveland Clinic has just applied for an insurance license. So you cut out that middleman, and and by doing that, you certainly remove the incentive to overtest and overbill, because right now, if if any of those hospital systems overtest and overbill, they've gotten you know a third-party insurance company that's going to pay the bill. If they're selling their own insurance, in other words, if I give the Cleveland Clinic, you know, nine thousand dollars a year to keep me and my family healthy as an insurance premium, they have no incentive to overtest me because. The only thing they have for me is $9,000. The issue is, will they skimp on my care? Mm -hmm. So uh, as a final question, you get very personal at the beginning and talk about uh, your aortic aneurysm. And I'm curious, how much of your change in thoughts about the healthcare system do you think has been because of your reporting versus your personal experience in dealing with the healthcare system? Or what have been the relative contributions of both of those? Well, it's a totally different kind of contribution is the easiest way to put it, which is, you know, my reporting, I'd like to think, you know, allows me to be a little more intelligent when you ask me about CAT scans and the per capita use of MRIs and talking to doctors about why they do it. My own experience sort of just drove home to me and allowed me to convey that uh, you can't think about healthcare policy and healthcare politics without understanding the unique and arguably toxic um, emotional component to it. And it's one thing to sort of know that intellectually. It's another thing to feel it. I mean, I'll give you an example. If it had turned out uh, when I was getting this open-heart surgery that they they needed to put a patch on uh, my aorta, it turns out they didn't. The surgeon explained to me that there was one kind of patch that was different from the other patch, and, the, and one kind cost 30% less than the other one but was really just as good. And I said, well, what's the other one? He said, well, it, it, it's thought to be a little better, last a little longer, but I, you know, I'm not sure I see the difference. 
I said, well, if you need a patch, I'll, I'll take the 100% one. And who wouldn't? Yeah, I agree because I think part of what we do in this country is we are so loath to discuss cost-effectiveness or, or the relative yeah. contributions. I mean, we just won't do but, it as a but society. But you can't, I mean, the reason the cost-effectiveness thing became death panels in the debate is if I were looking at what kind of car to buy and I had sort of zeroed in on a Chrysler or a Ford, two models that were, you know, in terms of size, you know, they're pretty close to each other, you know, the same kind of car. And I go to Consumer Reports, and I find out that the um, Ford is 90% as good as the Chrysler in terms of reliability, comfort, everything that I'm worried about. But the Ford costs 60% as much. I'm going to buy the Ford, right? Absolutely. But how, how do we how do we what about how do we do that in that, healthcare? Assuming I knew that, what if I'm doing that comparison for a heart valve for my daughter? Right. But but how do we have that conversation? Given that that most of these things are so expensive that nobody's ever going to be paying for them out of pocket anyway. How how do we have that kind of conversation? Well, I think the first conversation we have to have is why do they both cost so much? Mm-hmm. Two and a half years ago, when I first started thinking about doing this article. There were a couple of magazine articles and a book written by people whose loved ones had, had suffered through terminal illnesses. And the juxt of the book and these two magazine articles was uh, keeping my loved one alive for six months cost a million dollars or half a million dollars. And the, the horrible ethical dilemma and moral dilemma of do I do it, do I bankrupt my children to keep my husband alive, you know, how much is a life worth? Mm-hmm. And my reaction to that was, well, why does it cost a million dollars to keep someone alive for six months? So that's where I start. Before, Yes, you have to have that conversation. And, and as I say at the end of the book, we're all going to have to have that conversation because we just don't have the resources. And even if we have the resources, the money, you know, the more transparency you have, the more you're going to be stuck with the dilemma of how do you allocate talent among doctors? You know, the last few pages of my book, I point out that surgeon I was lucky enough to have seems to rank in the 99.9 percentile. Well, once we have real transparency and real easy access to transparency, who's going to go to a website and say, I'll take the 85 percent doctor? I totally understand what you're saying. It's 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 these are fascinating questions, and I wish we could talk forever about this, and I, yeah. <laughs> I really would. But I want to thank you very much for joining us, Stephen Happy Brill. To do it. Your new book, America's Bitter Pill. Uh, I enjoyed it. I recommend other people read it. And thanks again for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Stephen Brill is the author of America's Bitter Pill. Dr. Aaron Carroll is director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research at Indiana University. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is actually two numbers today. The American Psychological Association just released its annual Stress in America report. While we still have plenty of stress to go around, it's not evenly distributed. The report shows a gender gap in our stress levels. This isn't like the wage gap in which women make less money than men. In terms of stress, women have more. 
Okay, it is like the wage gap, in that both come out in men's favor. On a 10-point scale, women put their stress at a 5.2. 5.2? Compared to men's, 4.5. 4.5? Several stress-related symptoms are also more common in women, like feeling overwhelmed or depressed or lying awake at night. Women also feel more isolated due to their stress. The APA stresses, uh, emphasizes, the importance of social support for stress relief. That may mean reaching out to a friend or joining a club. But it's best to avoid the approach that men are more likely to use for their stress levels, which is to do nothing. That was your Sound Medicine Stat, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, when marijuana became legal in Colorado, its side effects started sending more users to the hospital. Perhaps the most life-threatening side effects that we've seen from legalization of marijuana, ironically, have been burns. And later, what happens to a small town when the local hospital closes its doors? A growing number of rural communities across America are finding out. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's Sound Medicine headlines. So much for another nutritional rule. This time it's cholesterol. This week, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee suggested that we limit cholesterol to 300 milligrams per day, or the equivalent of one egg. But since new research shows that not all cholesterol affects the body the same way, new guidelines are being drawn up. They'll make a distinction between some foods like whole milk and fatty meats that should be limited and others, including egg yolks and shellfish, which are just fine. Next time you travel to Southeast Asia, you might want to pack the Imodium, but not the antibiotics. Scandinavian scientists tested several hundred travelers who experienced the so-called traveler's diarrhea and found those who treated it with an antibiotic ended up bringing home even more drug-resistant bacteria. Those who stuck with drinking more fluids and an over-the-counter product felt better and didn't bring home any strange bugs. A new study this week from Arizona State University suggests that how a teacher feels may matter as much as whether he or she knows the material. Researchers found those who were depressed but knew the subject being taught were able to get that information across to students. But teachers turned out to be less effective if they were both depressed and struggling with a new curriculum. And finally, for those who swear by their nightly glass of red wine, comes this news from Great Britain. A study of 53,000 Brits who consumed red wine and other alcoholic beverages on a daily basis found little to no health benefits linked to alcohol consumption. No word on whether a retest is underway. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. In 1933, much of America rejoiced when prohibition was repealed. Once again, alcohol was legal. But imagine if a ban on alcohol were only ending now, after nearly 100 years. What effect would legal alcohol have on our country? How many people would start drinking? How long would it take for them to learn how to safely and sensibly find a place for alcohol in their lives? Millions of Americans are now facing these questions with marijuana. 
The drug has been legal for adults for several years in Colorado and in Washington. In November, voters in Oregon, Alaska, and the District of Columbia opted to legalize it as well. Recently, Time Magazine reported that marijuana might become legal in 18 states during the next five years. Our next guest, Dr. Jason Persoff, has gotten a good look at what happens when people embrace legal marijuana a little too enthusiastically. He's a hospitalist based in Denver, Colorado. So the date, January 1st, 2014, seems to stand out in your memory. For those of us not living in Colorado, what happened in your state on that date? I don't think it snowed, but it definitely was an amazing day for our state because that was the date that marijuana became legally available to be sold in the state. And so how long did it take for you and your colleagues to see a bump in folks coming to the hospital for marijuana-related problems? It took probably a couple weeks as everyone got excited about that. It was kind of a funny January day when that all happened. There were lines around the block for these dispensaries that had opened up. But initially, the big pole was smoked marijuana. But as we've learned from the medicinal marijuana boom, if you will, a few years back, we knew that a lot of people were interested in the edible marijuana. And the edible marijuana seems to be our biggest problem agent in terms of medicine is concerned because it has such a long half-life. So within a few weeks of having people sort of experiment with different things, we began to start seeing patients who were suffering the side effects of marijuana intoxication. You wrote a, a blog posting about the surge of people you've treated for marijuana overuse, which you call, quote, a bit disheartening, if not occasionally humorous. What are some of the symptoms that brought them in? The disheartening part, of course, is it's always unfortunate to see an increase in any disease that's potentially preventable. But what we've definitely seen is uh, patients who've suffered from either acute intoxication where they get very nervous, very paranoid, and extremely nauseated and, and break out in sweat. And then the other part is what we call marijuana hyperemesis syndrome, where patients develop a tolerance over time to marijuana. And what ends up happening is a paradox. Most people think marijuana helps with nausea. But what ends up happening is in some people, they develop this cyclic vomiting syndrome. So they usually it starts off innocuously. Somebody gets a viral illness, say, and then they get nauseated. And somebody says, hey, you know what will really help that is some marijuana. And the marijuana helps so well and makes them feel apparently so good that they continue to use it intermittently, especially whenever they get nauseated. And over time, they become habituated to it to the point where the marijuana actually induces vomiting. We don't know exactly what the mechanism is, though some of my colleagues and I believe that it's a withdrawal phenomenon uh, from the marijuana. And so they'll come in vomiting and, and being very, very high blood pressure, high heart rate, feeling awful, stating that the only thing is the marijuana that will help them. And these patients also have this very funny but very stereotyped need to be in a hot shower to help with the side effects of these symptoms. And, and I don't mean just like a hot shower, I mean a continuous running hot shower. And more than one patient has requested that I interview them while they were in a hot shower, which is an interesting experience, to say the least. So is the vomiting tied to, again, edible marijuana, or is this is just people that chronically use it, whether they're smoking it or eating it? It, it seems to be more with the edibles, but it can okay. be just with habituated use. But I do want to put context in this. Two things. The first is I'm a hospitalist. 
And as a hospitalist, I'm only going to see patients who are sick enough to warrant admission to the hospital. So I'm seeing a very biased and select group of individuals. But the second is that there's no question that this is tied to recreational marijuana use in the state. We didn't see these effects very often before this happened, although it was recognized. We have seen a doubling of the incidence of these episodes since legalization. But that number is still, fortunately, quite small. So what about burns? Yeah, burns have been a major issue with uh, marijuana. We just had a gentleman last night who was admitted because he also is on oxygen. And he takes medicinal marijuana, but uh, used a butane lighter to light his marijuana, and that ended up leading to face burns. We've seen a lot of people who want to get towards the more concentrated um, hash oil, and that is extremely flammable. So we've actually seen a great number of injuries. In fact, perhaps the most life-threatening side effects that we've seen from legalization of marijuana, ironically, have been burns. Um, people who have gotten burned from the different methods that they use to smoke the marijuana. In addition to children who have been intoxicated through edibles, which look for the world just like any other candy out there. And, now, and you mentioned you're a hospitalist. You're not an emergency room doctor, so you really are treating the people who are actually admitted to the hospital, whether they're in a hot shower or not. But I, you, we talked a little bit about people who use it chronically and, and become ill because of that. But how about the first-time users? I mean, are, do you see um, cases that are serious enough to warrant admission to the hospital? Fortunately, most first-time users who have an adverse experience uh, are able to be treated in the emergency, emergency room setting and safely released. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had to take an acute intoxication, with the exception of somebody who took edibles. And these edibles can lead to that acute intoxication syndrome where patients are very hyperactive in a panic sort of situation. Um, they can be paranoid. They can even have episodes of memory loss, um, which adds to the paranoia. And that usually with an edible can last up to eight hours, sometimes just a touch longer. Whereas when marijuana is smoked, it's usually in and out of the system within a one to two hour time frame. Well, let's talk a little bit about figuring out the dose of marijuana that someone used. I mean, it's, it's harder than asking how many pills they took or how much vodka they drank, that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. Trying to get a history in the use of marijuana is, is <laughs> it's a challenge. For one thing, we a few years ago, as most of the country has, converted over to a computerized order entry system in our hospital to gauge what patients are taking in terms of their medications. And now we're kind of in this sort of weird zone where marijuana is not really a medicine and it's not really a diet and people are using it. And we're required to enter whatever the patient is taking at home into our medical record which brings up the issue of how is marijuana dosed? I mean, is it based on the number of inhales, if you're doing inhaled? Or could it be, you know, the number of edibles you ate? I mean, these numbers are very difficult for me to, to grasp as a physician. One or two joints, I have no idea how to quantify that. So I do the best that I can in our medical record. But our medical record also demands at the end of a patient's hospitalization that we discharge them on certain medications. And the question that comes up for me is, do I discharge them back onto marijuana, or do I recommend they stop that, or, or where do we go? You know, there's no standard preparation for marijuana, um, and because there's so many different ways to imbibe marijuana from 
eating it in brownies, a kind of a traditional way, through candy, other edibles. And now they've also got aerosolized inhalers. And there's a whole high-end market in Denver where you can actually go to a spa that specializes in marijuana. And they have all sorts of interesting concoctions, I'm told. It's very confusing. Yeah. So what do you do? I'm picturing you here. You're you're discharging someone, and you just you're you're looking at your electronic medical records, and you're looking at them, and you're thinking, I don't know what to do here. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's hard to put any good medical marijuana advice on their discharge summary because, you know, here's here's the deal. We don't actually know much about marijuana at all in the medical community. I mean, the the irony of it being legal to use marijuana in the state of Colorado is that at the same time, we have the DEA, which still has marijuana registered as a class one drug, which means that it can only be used for research in very, very specific centers in very, very specific ways. And yet the researchers who would hopefully be able to provide us data so that we could counsel our patients on discharge about what is or isn't safe, they can't actually do the research that we really need to know about the safety and efficacy of marijuana. And um, yet at lunch, they can go out and smoke a few joints or any number of however you want (laughs) to write on the discharge sheet. To, you know, so they can continue to use recreational marijuana, but we as physicians are somewhat hamstrung. We really don't know much. Most studies are extraordinarily confined to low populations, and usually to answer one or two clinical issues. Only now that we're seeing more side effects, has one of my colleagues at the University of Colorado, Andrew Monte, been able to put together a correspondence which was recently published in JAMA, which demonstrates that we see the harms that come from marijuana. But there's a whole lobby of people who would also have us engage in the discussion about the potential benefits of marijuana as well. And we just don't have the information to tell them. Mm -hmm. And if you could get the right information, I mean, what could you use now? I mean, what could you really use now in in your job as a hospitalist to help take care of these people? I think for the patients who have this hyperemesis syndrome where they're recurrently vomiting, we treat that like any other drug. It's a form of drug addiction and toxicity. And it's important to kind of get them towards thinking of that as, a, as the untoward side effects of using that medication. It would be the akin of somebody who gets the shakes after drinking lots of, mar- or drinking lots of marijuana. See, there, there's the confusion right there. <laughs> after drinking lots of alcohol, um, they get the shakes. Those shakes are caused from the alcohol, and we need to get them to buy in that that probably means that they're an alcoholic. And so the addiction piece is fairly easy. But at the present, the best I can say is, you know, lock up your edibles, make sure your kids don't get at them, and and use marijuana with caution, whatever that means. So it's a kind of, it sounds like a back-to-school special. You know, kids don't do drugs, and we don't know why you shouldn't, but trust us. And it feels very empty to me as a hospitalist. Well, Dr. Persoff, thank you so much for talking with me about this. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Jason Persoff is an assistant professor of internal medicine in the Hospital Medical Group of the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And next week, we'll explore another impact that legal marijuana may have on America when we speak with an expert on the drug's effects on drivers. And coming up after a break, we'll check in on teens' attitudes towards marijuana and other health-related issues. Boy, she's really frantic, the wildest chick in town. 
she blows her gauge, flies in a rage, sweet marijuana brown. It's time now for this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. Want to feel happier and less stressed with your job? Maybe it's time to walk away from it. Well, at least during your lunch hour. Here's Jill Dittmeyer. Researchers in the UK recruited a group of sedentary women to take a 20-minute walk during their lunch break at work three times a week. They wanted to gauge their mood daily, in the morning and afternoon, with or without exercise, so they used a phone app that let the women record their mood immediately. After 10 weeks, their findings confirmed their theory. The women's moods were significantly more relaxed and less stressed immediately after their walk, as opposed to the morning before or the days that they did not take their lunchtime stroll. Dr. Terry Liddy isn't surprised by the findings. There's a noticeable difference between my staff who walk and my staff who don't. She and her staff at an Indianapolis health care center work with patients who suffer from obesity and drug and alcohol addictions. We see a lot of people who are very sick when they present because they have previously not had insurance. Dr. Liddy says being able to prescribe something that doesn't take much time but shows benefits helps. We have a lot of people who do suffer from depression, anxiety, etc., and not saying that this study will help treat those things, but I think it will be added incentive to people who do need a little pick-me-up. And I think people who are generally don't feel like they've taken good care of themselves, again, doing something positive for their health will add to that mood elevation benefit, I think. Up until a year ago, Dr. Liddy could have been one of those sedentary volunteers, but now she too makes time to take a 20-minute walking break. Not during the lunch hour, but my son does competitive gymnastics. So when I take him to the gym, I put my headphones on and turn my music on and I go for it. It depends. I try to do a mile to a mile and a half and sometimes it takes me 20 minutes and sometimes it takes me 30. It depends on how my day is gone. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones. Looking for fun and feeling You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. Surveys find that marijuana use is common in teens, who say that they just don't find the drug very dangerous these days. Given marijuana's growing legal status, that might not be too surprising. On the other hand, a lot of teenagers are making sensible, healthy choices that might leave their parents pleasantly surprised. Alcohol use and binge drinking are down in teens. So are pregnancy rates. Our next guest, Dr. Teresa Rohr Kirschgraber, joins us to explore the factors that may have started these noteworthy trends. She's an associate professor of pediatrics and medicine at the IU School of Medicine. Dr. Teresa Rohr Kirschgraber, it is always good to have you here in the studio. Great to be here, Barb. 
we keep seeing positive news about teenagers' health-related behaviors, and we wanted to get your take on these trends. So let's start with teen pregnancy, which experts say is at a historic low. Their abortion rate has declined steeply over the past few decades, too. So what has caused this drop in teen pregnancies? Well, whatever has caused it, we have to keep it going because we know what an impact it makes when a adolescent is able to graduate from school, go on to a career, and not have a teen pregnancy. So it's such a huge thing. So we think there are a number of different reasons for why the adolescent teen pregnancy rate has dropped. One, we know that there has been a big push over many years for sex education. So that education is being done not only in the home, but also in the school setting. And so that, that it has to be helpful to understand a little bit more about how your body works and get rid of some of those myths that have been around for so long. You know, the myth that you couldn't get pregnant the first time that you had sex, the myth that unless you had uh, vaginal penetration, you couldn't get pregnant. There are so many different myths out there um, that were kind of clouding, I think, the issue. The other thing that that we're hoping has been helpful is a lot of the campaigns to help teens understand what happens when you get pregnant, that it isn't just all fun and games and little babies are not just cute things that you dress up. Those campaigns, I think, have been helpful coming from the Office of Women's Health, coming from uh, various school districts, coming from um, Planned Parenthood or other reproductive um, agencies, but also coming from homes and families, and thank goodness from our churches as well, imploring our teens to think think before they consider having sexual intercourse and wait, wait until they're out to really ready for it or that they have the appropriate relationship. So is sexual activity decreasing or are they just more savvy about birth control? You know, it's interesting. We think that sexual activity has decreased. Not only are they a little bit more knowledgeable about reproductive health, but that more teens are saying no, more teens are waiting. And we're hopeful that that's not only because of the big national campaigns and just say no, but it's also because parents are talking about these things around the dinner table and that kids are being shown that there are other activities to do rather than having relationships and having sex. So more good news, alcohol use in teens is also at historically low levels, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. What do you think is causing this trend? Well, I think that there has been so much emphasis on drunk driving and the use of alcohol and the difficulties that that come along with it, and that parents are much more open now about being proactive and saying, you know, don't drink and hear the reasons why or who's going to be the designated driver. I mean, I know even with my own kids, they choose a designated driver regardless so that at least they know that there's going to be one person that's not that's going to make the pledge to not drink. And I think that's been helpful. The organizations, for example, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, even though they've been around for years, I think some of their enthusiasm and some of their very out there message has helped to hit home. I think the fact that we are, as a society, a lot more open about it and that when students get caught, that they get the book thrown at them, either by the school or by their families or their communities, it's not as acceptable, I think, now to be, quote, wasted, wasted at the football games or wasted in your school classroom. There's this kind of, I think, perception from the kids even that look down on drinking because they've been kind of bombarded with the horrors that can happen. 
I said this was all going to be good news, but we do have one <laughs> one, one bad news thing. The, the, the pendulum is swinging the other way when it comes to marijuana use. And surveys are finding that young people are regarding marijuana as less risky. And marijuana use is climbing among high schoolers and even younger. Um, do you have any sense of what might be driving this change? Well, it's difficult because when something becomes legalized, even if it's not in your own state, the idea is that if it's legal, it must be okay. And so it's not as hard to get, perhaps, as it had been in the past. I think we have to be very conscious about discussing um, substance use, regardless of what that substance is, with our kids. We have to ask them at every opportunity. We have to bring it up. We have to model good behaviors so that they have an understanding of why it's a problem. Marijuana use is a difficult thing because there isn't always a rapid test that you can do to say, at what level am I impaired? And everybody thinks that it's not going to affect them, especially for the kids. It's so hard for them to see the long road impact on activities that they do in their daily lives. And that's why we need to kind of keep that out in the forefront and talk about it. Because unfortunately, you know, there are substances that they can get that are even in the house. There's alcohol that they can get. There's glue sniffing. There's lots of different kinds of things. We have to be proactive in at least bringing up the negative impacts of those kinds of behaviors. One last question. You mentioned that it's great for parents to constantly keep the communication open. Any other tips further than that on how to make those moments count when you are communicating? Absolutely. One of the biggest things that helps to decrease the incidence of substance use among your teens is having dinner with them. Interesting. Make a point of having dinner with your family, sitting down around a table with the television off, with the radio off, with no cell phones, three to four times a week. If you do that at least four times a week, the incidence of substance abuse is cut in half. And it's just the idea that you're talking, you're discussing, you hear things, you can bring it up. It's that time that you have one-on-one time with your child that makes a world of difference. And they need to know that you're gonna be consistent. That when you say no, that you mean no, and that there's gonna be a consequence for that action. We know that those teens that have parents that stick to their discipline um, rules actually have a much better outcome than those that don't. Good advice. As always, Dr. Teresa Rohr-Kirsch-Graber, it's always good to have you here. Thank you, Barb. Dr. Teresa Rohr-Kirsch-Graber is a physician with IU Health and Eskenazi Health. Hospitals play an important role in the daily life of rural towns across America. They provide emergency treatment, surgeries, inpatient medical care for residents. They're also a source of well-paying jobs that support local economies. But many rural hospitals are struggling to stay open. Since the beginning of 2010, nearly 50 have closed either entirely or shifted to services such as urgent care or outpatient care. Our next guest, Dr. Dan Dirksen joins us to discuss the factors that are threatening the health of many rural hospitals. He's the director of the Center for Rural Health at the University of Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Dirksen. 
Thank you. We're talking today about the, the pressures facing hospitals in small towns and rural areas. What are some of the factors that threaten a small hospital survival prospects compared to a larger counterpart in a big city? Well, first of all, uh, rural hospitals are really a central strand um, in our nation's healthcare safety net. So these communities depend on this health infrastructure to provide health services and ready access to care for uh, individuals that live in those communities. They're the, really the foundation for a community and create jobs and catalyze economic development, as well as provide access to high quality care. So uh, right now, uh, our health system in the country is undergoing dramatic uh, transformation. And there are a lot of opportunities for rural hospitals uh, as, as well as challenges. And I'd say some of the challenges are that while many more are being covered through things such as the provisions in the Affordable Care Act that expanded Medicaid in those states that are choosing to expand Medicaid, and uh, marketplace, which a uh, state can decide whether they do their own marketplace or have the federal government do them for them. There's many more being covered, and yet in these smaller towns, uh, there's often challenges with shortages of, of health providers. So rural hospitals are kind of a crucial uh, element of the health infrastructure, and what we're seeing is that the payment methodologies for payment to these hospitals and the providers, the health providers that work there, are changing. Uh, we're expecting lower costs and uh, better value. In other words, uh, better health outcomes. So um, the way that hospitals are being paid is changing very quickly. Uh, in the past, it's been dominated by uh, receiving a payment or a fee every time a service is provided and what the system is rapidly changing uh, to is payment for uh, health outcomes. Uh, so there's an expectation now of not only performing the service, but also expecting a, a high-quality outcome. But the rate of hospital closures really seems to have accelerated in, in the past two years. So what's behind the actual closure of these rural hospitals? Yes, there's uh, several factors that are contributing to a closure of, of hospitals in rural areas. One of them is that we're, as the system evolves and the financing of healthcare delivery evolves, the systems that do well, even in small towns, are those that are integrated and collaborating with other health systems. You can't duplicate services that are readily available in a region. So uh, the rural hospitals that have been able to integrate with other systems do better there's an economy of scale of providing certain services in that particular community and farming out some of those services or providing those services with new technologies such as uh, telehealth. And so uh, those that are doing better are adapting to the changes in the way healthcare is being financed. Those that haven't adapted as quickly or are uh, not uh, part of a larger system they're very vulnerable to the month-to-month -month changes in the way things are paid for or the quality outcomes that are expected by an insurer or a public payer like Medicare or Medicaid. So, you know, these changes we knew were coming, is it that they just couldn't adapt quickly enough? Or is it just the, the, the system is just set up against just not being able to help rural hospitals? Well, uh, rural hospitals have 
to adapt to changes both at the state level, sometimes at the county or city level, as well as at the federal level. And and uh, over the last two or three years, those changes have been coming very quickly. Oftentimes, you know, you have the individuals responsible for uh, the administration of a hospital, the chief executive officer, the chief nursing officer, the chief information officer. They have to be aware of the changes not only at the federal level in the way Medicare might pay them, but also at the local level on how a particular insurer like Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or another uh, private insurance company pays them and expects them to report back on some of the quality outcomes that they're demanding now. So some have adapted very quickly and understand, you know, kind of the the changes and the and the way things are being paid for. And others have, have really uh, struggled to make those uh, rapid changes because there's just a very small number of individuals that are really responsible for administering the operations of that particular hospital. So when a small town hospital shuts down, what are some of the ways the closure can affect residents' health? Well, the the most obvious one and the, and the most serious concern is eliminating, you know, that ready access to health care. The critical access hospitals in the in the uh, smaller communities, these are hospitals with 25 beds or less and more than 35 miles from other uh, hospital facilities, are required to provide 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week uh, emergency services. And so if one of those safety net hospitals shuts down, oftentimes people have to drive very long distances, you know, at certain times of the year that can be very challenging for travel. So ready access to quality health care is uh, the most serious concern that that's eliminated. But the closure can also uh, be devastating to the economics of a, of a community. Uh, once you lose that kind of central piece in your health infrastructure, the rural hospital, it affects uh, all the other services that are provided related to health in that community, such as the pharmacy, the private clinic that a, a physician might be working in, and uh, or perhaps even the nursing home or the uh, other types of health services that are in that community. Once you lose that kind of uh, anchoring point of a rural hospital, the other services erode as well. Yeah. Can, can any technologies help ease the pain in, in small towns that lose their hospitals, uh, better equipped ambulances, for example, or seeing a specialist by a video link? I mean, are there any viable good solutions? There are. I think there's a lot of exciting changes um, and opportunities for rural hospitals. Uh, certainly one that's evolving very quickly is access to uh, health services through remote telehealth or telemedicine services. Uh, many rural hospitals, for example, if they do uh, an x-ray, a radiograph in the emergency room and it's after hours, a radiologist, a specialist physician can read that image and report back very quickly through telehealth linkage. For a specialty where there might not be enough business for them to uh, exist in a community, a very small community, for example, may need the services of a, of a skin specialist, a dermatologist, or a, a rheumatologist, or a cardiologist. And and so many of those services actually can be delivered uh, remotely through a rural hospital with a link that allows those services to be delivered without uh, the actual physical presence of a physician at that particular facility at the time the person needs that service being done.
Dr. Dan Dirksen is the director of the Community, Environment, and Policy Division of the University of Arizona College of Public Health. Next week, we're going to return to our discussion with Dr. Dirksen to learn about solutions that might help some rural communities keep their hospitals open. That's it for this week's program. You can post comments about what you heard today on Facebook and submit suggestions for future shows at our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our free podcast so you can listen anytime that's convenient to you. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf prepares our interviews. He also wrote and produced today's show. Chris Lieber records and edits our program each weekend. He chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. And our executive producer is Eric Eggleton. And I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.